0: To another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. Episode 23. Really. Skidoo. Skidoo.
1: I should have shown Skidoo because 23 yeah. Skidoo, but.
0: And I haven't I, seen Skidoo, and I, I really thought want about to see it. Skidoo.
1: I thought about it, but because it's something we've talked about before. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I felt like you might be expecting it.
0: No, I wouldn't have been expecting it, but. I would have been pleasantly surprised.
1: For a few minutes.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Skidoo is this um, movie, I guess, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I guess I don't really know too much about it. I know All I know is that Harry Nielsen wrote, he did the score for it.
1: And Otto Preminger directed it. Otto Preminger directed it. And... It's weird. He was a villain on um, the Batman TV show in the 60s. And in the cast, there's three other villains. Because Cesar Romero, Frank Gorshin, and Burgess Meredith are all in the movie. And then Otto Preminger was one of, uh, I think, two actors to play Mr. Freeze. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, I was going to say, uh, he, he directed Freeze. it.
1: Yeah, because I think George Saunders played it first. Okay. And then when they had him on again, Otto Preminger did it
0: yeah so I mean I don't know and, it, and it's like filled with like other guest stars and it's just like this kind of like
1: yeah like uh, Peter Lawford's in it and uh, I mean it, it stars Jackie Gleason <clears throat> and uh, Groucho Marx plays a character named God who may or may not be God and uh, it's got Mickey Rooney and Carol Channing and Frankie Avalon
0: yeah I mostly want to see it for Harry Nielsen's involvement I'm a pretty big Harry Nielsen fan but yeah, and, and also the, uh, you know, the all the actors from the, the Batman series, because those are, aside from Burgess Meredith, I don't think I've seen any of those actors playing any other characters, like it, like Cesar Romero and Frank Gorshin. I only know them as the Joker and the Riddler.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen much either. I mean, Cesar Romero, oh, what did I see him in? He had um, a small role in the Thin Man, the first Thin Man movie. And he shows up he, I would see him in like Bit parts and things And be like Is that Cesar Romero? But I don't even remember What they were hmm. uh, Frank Gorshin was um, He was great in Invasion of the Saucer Man, Which is a 1957 Sci-fi comedy That's sort of like At that point There'd been a ton of those Like great like 50s Cheesy sci-fi movies Right So, so that was like The spoof of it Right And that's That's pretty entertaining And he was in Um One of my favorite Vincent Minnelli movies, Bells Are Ringing, and he played, um... Well, Frank Gorshin, like, before, like, he considered himself an actor, he was, like, an impressionist first. Mm. So, like, in that movie, he's basically doing an impression of, uh, Brando. Specifically, Brando in, like, Streetcar Named Desire and The Wild One. So, a lot of, uh... Well, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it.
0: I, I... <laughs> no, come on, Tim. Do Frank Gorshin doing Marlon Brando.
1: Okay, here's my impression of, of Frank Gorshin doing Marlon Brando. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I can't. <laughs> yeah, never mind. But, um, but, yeah, no, I've seen Burgess Meredith and a ton of stuff, but not... Not the other two guys.
0: No. (laughs) Um. The Batman series is finally coming out on home video. This year. How did they finally figure that out? Not sure what the. how it all happened, but they were finally able to come to a deal between all of the parties involved. And. Yeah, I think it was like a couple months ago they announced that it would be coming out sometime this year.
1: I bought. Well, I didn't buy. Uh, Natalie bought for me um, a bootleg of the entire series on DVD at a garage sale mm. for uh, like 20 bucks.
0: That's that's a pretty awesome garage sale find.
1: Yeah. At the same place, you also got Gremlins 2 on VHS, which has um, a different version than is on DVD of the scene in the theater. You've seen Gremlins 2, right? Yeah. The scene in the theater with Hulk Hogan? It's very easy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well... <laughs> There's a scene in Gremlins 2. <laughs> Not to get too off topic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important that I clarify this. Uh, where the fil- like uh, Christopher Lee is like yelling about something and all of a sudden like the film starts to like speed up and then slow down and then just kind of breaks. And then it looks like oh no the gremlins have taken over the theater, right. which was probably very amusing when you saw it in the when theater. When you actually saw it in the theater. But, like, I, growing up, I saw the HBO version, and I have it on DVD, and, like, that's the version where they're, like, making shadow puppets on the screen, mm. and they're kind of, like, messing around in the projection booth. And then Natalie got the VHS version, and they did a specific version for home video. And oh, I, I'm my pi- god! And I'm pissed that it's not on the DVD.
0: Yeah, there's no excuse for that. Yeah. What, what is it?
1: It's, they start changing channels because we're watching That's the movie amazing. on TV yeah. and they intercut them into like a John Wayne movie. Wow. Where they're like in World War II or something and it's like there's gremlins in World War II. What the That's hell? So
0: awesome because like when I was younger, um you sometimes you you see movies like that or even in like Looney Tunes cartoons there's the joke, you know, it's like I need a doctor. Is there a doctor? And then you see someone the silhouette. stand the silhouette stand yeah. up and like, oh, "I'm a doctor." And they say like or or they'll you know they'll break the fourth wall and say like you in the back row, yeah, you whatever, but you always see those things at at home, you know on the t v when yeah. you're when you're a kid, and um so I always used to think like what would be a cool way to do it like for like a home video, what would be the equivalent of that to like and changing the channels that's a great that's that's yeah. awesome,
1: and I mean, like that was definitely joe dante's influence he i mean you can definitely see the warner brothers cartoon influence right. on his films and the gremlins films were for warner brothers so he was able to actually use the um daffy and bugs in like the opening scene of them or not the opening scene but like the pre-credits thing like Do you remember the, um where they're like arguing about something i don't even remember what
0: rabbit season duck season
1: uh i don't remember I think it was something about how, like, when the Warner Brothers shield came up, Bugs was sitting on top of it, and Daffy was like, why can't I? Oh, right, because,
0: yeah, because the, the, for, at some point, the Warner Brothers was using that logo with Bugs sort of lounging on it, like, chewing on a carrot.
1: And, um, and then in the end credits, like, Daffy Duck keeps popping up and being like, are you guys still here? Why are these credits so long? Who are these people? And, like but I I love Gremlins 2. I want
0: to watch Gremlins 2 again, because yeah, you can't go into that movie thinking that you're going to get something that's similar to the first Gremlins. Yeah. Because it's nothing like it. And it's doing something. Well,
1: totally it's different. a, it's a fuck you sequel because he didn't want to do a sequel. And Warner brothers tried for years to get someone to do it. And finally he was like, okay, look, apparently the sequel is going to be made. Just let me do it and have uh, some fun with yeah the and they're and they're again. like well and he's like look I'll do it but I get to do whatever I want right mm-hmm. and so like he had that power at that point in time which is weird looking back to think wow Joe do Dante, Dante had, had that much power he had
0: Warner Brothers by the balls
1: <sighs> and um <laughs> and it was he was just like it's just a such a mindfuck of a movie mm-hmm. It's like, uh, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a fuck you sequel. Right. Toby Hooper didn't want to do a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They finally got him to do it. And he's like, you want a sequel? Here's your fucking sequel. <laughs> yeah. And it's just ridiculously over the top. Yeah. But yeah. So Batman's coming out on DVD. That's how we got to that.
0: Was it really how we got to
1: that? Yeah. Because oh, then because... I mentioned the, the bootleg at the garage sale <laughs> and how Natalie had also bought the Gremlins 2. Yeah. You... Okay.
0: Yeah, Batman, the, the, the 60s series with Adam West yeah. is finally coming out on DVD, and I presume Blu-ray as well. For years, it was one of those things that you would think would be like a no-brainer. There's, It still has a lot of... Um, I mean, he's Batman, first of all. Yeah. You know, it's perfectly marketable. There's, like, a whole generation of people who grew up on it.
1: And for people who it's are, like, oh, show. I'm too... Those people who are, like, I'm too cool for superheroes, it's like it's so tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. that anybody can enjoy it and laugh at it, or kids can watch it and take it seriously. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, like, me growing up, like, my... Probably my, like, very first, like, memory of actually, like, watching a movie was the... Batman the movie the, with Adam West. And at the time, like, you know, I didn't even know that there was a show that like went or went mm. along with it. You know what I mean? Because it was never on, or at least I never saw it on. So it was always one of those things like people have been knocking on the, their door saying like, hey, when are we going to be able to like go back and watch through all the show? When are you going to release the series on home video? They did it all the way back when VHS was happening and no releases, not even like any episodes or anything
1: we just had these public domain videos of like clips right of like psa's they did Mm -hmm. or like i remember there was some there was a clip of like a mothman episode or something i don't even remember it had it had like um one thing they had shot where um batman and robin were tied up and there was like a time bomb there and batgirl shows up Mm. And they're like, yay, Batgirl's here to save us. And she's like, not so fast, Cape Crusaders. (laughs) Um, Like, I do just as much work as Robin. Why am I paid less than him? Wow. And Batman's like, this isn't the time or the place. And she's like, no, yes it is. And it was like, an equal pay p s a
0: that's amazing, yeah, it was See, ridiculous, and, and like it that, ends
1: like... with her holding the bomb and in one hand and like the clock in the other, and the announcer voice comes over and it's like, will they change their mind <laughs> like
0: <laughs> that's awesome. I hope that they like include that kind of stuff as special features,, hmm. but yeah, so like for years, fans wondered why the heck this stuff wasn't being put out, and the reason is because i mean d c comics. ...owns the character of Batman. Mm. Warner Brothers owns the film rights and the home video releases. 20th Century Fox owns, I believe, the, the movie.
1: Yeah, they made the movie.
0: Then there's, like, the production company who actually made the show, and they own certain rights. And all of them together just could never come to any sort of agreement as to who or under what circumstances the show could be put out over the last like year or so i think some something cleared up so one of the companies like one of the like either like the rights suddenly were purchased or whatever but like cuz even when you think about it like not even there not even not just like the show but like there was no merchandise even being released no like you know adam west style action figures or replica Batmobiles that you could get from based on the show. There was just like, there was nothing because it was all tied up. Um, but just this past year, they finally started releasing, um, action figures based on the characters from the show. And DC comics started publishing a comic book called Batman 66, which is in the style of the, of the show. How is it? It's pretty fun. Uh, I've, I've read the first couple issues. and uh it's pretty cool. And actually they just announced that Kevin Smith is going to be taking over writing duties on that, which I think is amazing. I think he'll his sense sensibilities and love for Batman um is just perfect for that kind of a of a project. But yeah, so whatever happened happened and the show's finally coming out and I can't wait. I I really want to see the show. I mean, because you hear about like, you know, oh, you know, Otto Preminger played Mr. Freeze on, on the show or Vincent Price played Egghead or um, Batgirl. <laughs> and it's like, all I know is like who and what is in the movie, you know? So it's just like, I would, I remember as a kid, I was seeing like a picture of like Batgirl and being like, Batgirl, she's not in the movie. where's like What is this from? It's like, there's like a hundred episodes. Wait, so
1: you never saw any of it?
0: Not until recently. No. Okay, so you have seen. I have seen. A the... co- I have seen some.
1: Okay, because I mean, it shows up on TV from time to time. When I was little, it was on the Family Channel, and then it like went away for a few years, and then it came back, and then it would go away. Yeah, and um, I know, like last year they started showing it on MeTV. Yeah, that's. And I... then they took away MeTV, or at least Time Warner Cable took away my access to
0: MeTV. <laughs> I have MeTV. Okay. On my, with my digital antenna somehow. Now on
1: that, isn't it like, like 10 point something
0: or is it 13.2 or 13.3 or something like that? I
1: can't figure out how to do points on my, cause it used to be five channel 500 something Hmm. and then they switched all the channels around and I can't find it anywhere. And I'm pretty sure they also got rid of the soap network.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't get the Soap Network. I get very limited channels, but yeah, I caught a couple episodes on MeTV actually when I first moved in to this apartment because Jared had a digital antenna and we were flipping through and I was and I had MeTV and that's like that. That's actually the first time that I saw an actual episode of the show and I was just like, "This is fantastic," because over the years, like my appreciation for the movie kind of has grown because it's one of those things like when i was a kid i i thought it was great but didn't understand like half the stuff that was going on in it or why certain things were the way that they were i just knew that it was like it was fun to look at and they had the really cool characters and there's was batman and you know the joker and it was just like it was cool and then you sort of like move on to like oh well like batman should be like dark and you know some days you just can't get rid of a (laughs) ball yeah and you sort of (laughs) i don't know i kind of looked at that old batman as like oh that's like the campy batman you know and i I discovered like the animated series which had come out and like this is batman you know in the tim burton movies and whatever but yeah then years later i like watched the movie again and i was just like this is awesome because it's just it's hilarious and it's just a different totally different kind of way to do like a superhero show especially in this day and age when superheroes are so everything is is dark and gritty i mean even superman is like
1: yeah they kind of doing the thing me. that
0: he does in man of steel which isn't to say that i don't like the dark knight and stuff which i cuz i do
1: it but. just seems like a lot of people are like oh well in order to get people to take these characters seriously we have to make them serious and mm-hmm. it's like you, you don't have like and i don't know how it is in the comic versions these days but i remember like i don't know when i see the trailers for like the avengers and stuff i think back to like the avengers i read growing up all bright and colorful and fun and and definitely spider-man like the one Sam Raimi movie I saw, like, I was like, oh, this is like Spider-Man. And you then, saw Spider-Man 2? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then the Andrew Garfield one, I was like, why? <laughs> Cheer up, Spider-Man. <laughs> like, he's on, he's you're... supposed to whine and not just be a dick.
0: Well, uh, and Peter Parker has always been, like, the guy who's, like, he's cracking jokes when he's, as he's cracking skulls, you know? He's, mm. like, he's wearing a bright red and blue costume swinging all over the place It's like anymore. a 16 year old kid you know um,
1: no it's all dark it's like blood red yeah is it, is, even, it... is
0: it even red and blue or is it red and black no it's red and blue
1: because that's such a dark movie I couldn't even see what the hell was going on half the time yeah fuck that movie I'm i mean, because sp- Spider-Man
0: the kind of character who and that's one thing like that the same same Raimi movies did do well is their portrayal of, of Spider-Man and the character and Peter Parker and stuff He's, he's one of those superheroes who needs to be out in the day, just, like, bright midday, just broad daylight. Everyone can see him. The whole city is, like, watching, you know, midtown rush hour. Spider-Man comes swinging overhead. And it's the same thing with Superman. You know, Superman's the, the kind of superhero who's, like, he's got to be out in front for the world to see. He's going to lead the way to a brighter future this shining symbol of hope that everyone can look up to and his you know bright blue suit his bright red cape his streak across metropolis sky <laughs> and um yeah man of steel is uh he's brooding now right yeah he's a bit too they're all he's a bit too broodish mm-hmm. And you know, I actually I, I rewatched Man of Steel recently on Blu-ray, and um, I think it's a it's it does what it does well. And that's the thing about these superhero movies that it's like, you know, everyone's going to complain about everything no matter what hmm. anybody does. But the thing is, is like if you look at Batman, if if Batman's history on on the silver screen has proved anything, is that this version of Batman isn't going to be the version of Batman that's going to be around forever, right? Wait a couple of years and there'll be a new version of Batman, you know? And that's what's great about, like, you look and there's, like, for whatever mood you're in, there's a Batman to suit it, you know? <laughs> there's, like, there's this, the the 60s, the Adam West Batman. There's the Tim Burton-style Batman. There's the Joel Schumacher Batman. There's the Christopher Nolan Batman. And now we're going to have the Ben Affleck Batman. And people are so, like, you know, oh, my God. God, Ben Affleck! You can't cast Ben Affleck, and it's like, why? What why the not? hell is wrong? I don't get that. Why not? Did
1: like, I did I miss the whole like when when, like maybe like it, at some point in like the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a lot of like Ben Affleck bashing. Mm-hmm. But like, why are people upset now? I thought he'd proved himself by now.
0: Yeah, I don't know. People are still just that's the thing. Like, there is no reason. It's just people like to complain about. It everything and
1: he's he's got the right like build for it like you could be like oh yeah he could just put on a suit and kick some ass and like i think he's a decent actor i just saw goodwill hunting for the first time like fairly recently and that's 97 i thought he was good in that Mm -hmm. and
0: um, and it's like and people will always say like oh well you know maybe he can play like you know the bruce wayne side you know the suave playboy guy but he can't be Batman.
1: Well, really, I'm pretty sure that whoever they cast is going to play the Bruce Wayne and then CGI will play Batman. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. It's just, and it's like, I mean, you look at any bit of casting news, like, it's the same thing that happened when, like, Michael Keaton was cast. Yeah. People were like...
1: He's a comedian. We get a yeah. Mr. Mom yeah, Mr. and Doodle wearing Johnny Dangerously cape? fighting crime.
0: Or when Heath Ledger was cast as a Joker. It's like, you know, the guy from A Knight's Tale... Brokeback Mountain he can't be Joker
1: well I thought he was great in Brokeback Mountain
0: yeah but it was still like you know he I mean yeah like, I don't see that like, and I'm
1: like oh Joker he's ha- yeah he has these <laughs> he's like, this like quiet guy who's yeah. like all
0: and he looks like a, like a male model you know
1: although I feel like that that is definitely a recent trend and I feel like we go through that every few years like in the 50s there were a lot of these actors where it's like is that the same are there five is that one actor playing five different characters on the screen right now? Because everybody just, like, kind of looks alike. Hmm. And, like, they all just, like, look like models. And then, like, the 60s and 70s, we kind of got, like, more, like, realistic-looking people. And and then we've kind of, like, gotten back into, like, the male model thing now. Yeah, it's kind of true. But at least Heath, Heath Ledger, I feel like I could pick him out of a crowd. But now there's these people who are supposed to be, like, these big superstars. And if I don't see their face next to like their name like written on the screen, I don't know who the hell who the Mm -hmm. hell they are. Even if I've seen them in like ten movies. Yeah.
0: Get off my lawn too while you're at it. (laughs) (sighs) Um but no, I mean I just think, you know, so this version of Superman, you know, it might be a little dark, but I mean that's fine. You, You just enjoy it for what it is and what it's doing now, instead of trying to say like, you know, yeah, oh, it should be more like this or it, you know.
1: Are you ever in a Joel Schumacher Batman mood? <laughs> like earlier you were saying like no matter what mood you're in, there's that one and this one and that. <laughs> like do you, are you ever like, you know what? Today, I'm going to bust out the Schumacher Batman movies and watch them.
0: Yeah. Um it just happened last year actually. Um but I didn't I I started with with I watched through the whole uh sort of 90s series. Yeah. So I started with Batman and then Batman Returns. But I was looking forward to rewatching Batman Forever and Batman and Robin because it had been a long time.
1: That was around the time that I saw them for the first time, I think, right? Yeah. And it was actually,
0: we were talking about it. And in those conversations talking about Batman Forever, that's when I was kind of toying with the idea of like, maybe we should do like a podcast where we talk about this stuff. And like, um, yeah. And I think about a month later, uh, we recorded the first episode. Um
1: thank you Joel Schumacher for inspiring <laughs> our podcast. You gave us our
0: careers. <laughs> we would have nothing without you. Um
1: yeah. I I really like Joel Schumacher, but I wasn't a huge fan of those movies. Yeah, I mean, they have their good points. I kind of like Batman & Robin a little more than Batman Forever because it's just so over the top yeah. and so accepting of what it is. Mhm.
0: Yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, I wouldn't like, if someone was going to say, like, <laughs> like, some, like some crazed movie fan, is like, you guys, I got the magic lamp. I've got one wish left. I'm going to do what we all wanted to do. You know, I'm going to erase Batman and Robin from existence. It will have never existed. And everyone on the internet would be like, yeah, we're going to do it. But, like, honestly, like, I would be sad to see it go. You know, like, it's the kind of thing, I'm glad it exists you know because since then not only i mean we have had got we've gotten better batman since then so it's like obviously it's like it didn't really matter in the long run but i mean it's it has its place in history and like you know it's this sort of it's just this awkward strange bizarre colorful campy homoerotic superhero movie that's <laughs> It's almost beautiful how disastrous it is, you know? So, I don't know. I think, like, every, everything has its place, you know? Even the bad movies. The only movie I would want to get rid of is Cutthroat Island.
1: I don't know. You get rid of that movie, and other movies start to look a little worse. You keep that movie, and everything you watch is like, wow.
0: <laughs> That's true, you know? Like...
1: If you get rid of Cutthroat Island, how horrible would the Adventures of Pluto Nash be?
0: probably way worse yeah
1: maybe to be a butterfly effect thing though like you got rid of cutthroat island and then like then you come back to like our time right gina davis is like a huge superstar yeah um and somehow nine eleven never happened <laughs>
0: <laughs> damn you cutthroat island
1: <laughs> and no pirates of the caribbean movies yeah, because there was already a huge pirate thing in the '90s. So
0: like Johnny Depp wouldn't be a huge star; he would have like faded into obscurity,
1: or he would still be acting, but he wouldn't just be falling back on these like cartoonish caricatures every movie. Oh yeah, because he doesn't have all that money. He he's, has. He's te- actually maintaining his integrity. Yeah,
0: and uh has done like successful low-budget films and like strange experimental stuff and.
1: He severed ties with Tim Burton after Sleepy Hollow.
0: Or maybe he smacked sense into Tim Burton and was like, come on, I want to do something. Let's remember the Edward Scissorhands days. Remember the Ed Wood days? Come on, let's do it.
1: <laughs> or they just went like so far in the opposite direction and they got together with uh, Lars von Trier and restarted the whole Dogme 95 thing. And they're just like shooting these like, real-time films and no special effects. So Helena Bonham Carter never got together with him because he never did he never made planet Planet of the the apes Apes. but he and lisa marie did break up so they're both out there and available so nice yeah
0: (laughs) yes what a wonderful world (laughs) so yeah that brings us to our movie of this week i didn't know what we were gonna watch tim picked the movie what made you pick this movie tim
1: I really enjoy this movie. Um we haven't watched any movies from the 30s. Oh uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, we haven't.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I love like those like 30s screwball comedies. Yeah. And, um we've kind of been sticking with like more recent films. And, uh, and I definitely wanted to like get very far away from the mood that the woman put us in (laughs) when I, uh, when I showed you
0: that. Yeah. I was, I was afraid actually that you're gonna try to up yourself from, uh, the woman. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, there were, I mean, I had, there were things I toyed with out of curiosity. I bought a DVD of German porn
0: out of curiosity. (laughs)
1: course and it's from it's from like the mid 80s and it shows it it's almost like watching one of those like those videos they'd show you in elementary school uh they're so like cheesily shot and everything um,
0: they showed you german porn in elementary school <laughs> where did you go to school i went then? to tanglewood
1: it was a wild place
0: <laughs> i <always laughs> knew there was something fishy going on at tanglewood
1: um but no, it, has, it has this weird like they
0: put the wood in tanglewood <laughs>
1: It has this weird, like, 80s public access aesthetic to it, mm. except everyone's just, like, naked and having sex.
0: That, I mean, that sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, like, it's a weird... Th- like, I don't
0: know what we would have talked about. And, um... I, I like the scene <laughs> where, uh, they were having sex.
1: Actually, no, I have another German porn, um... The first of the uh, Schoolgirl reports There's a whole series Of films Started in the 70s uh, Schoolgirl reports I have the first one And I thought it was Kind of boring So I never looked Into the other ones Apparently they get More explicit as they go Along Based on like How loose the censorship In Germany was at the time mm. But um So yeah I got Two German porn Movies on DVD <laughs> And uh Anyway I decided to go with Easy Living.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Easy Living. Easy Living. Um, We were just interrupted, actually. A bunch of our city folk friends came up to say hello. They just arrived. Chris Rosen and Ryan. Um, They're here for a shoot. This week, we're going to be shooting for a couple days. Not necessarily part of Lake Nowhere, but it's kind of like... It's part of the, like, Knorr experience.
1: It's the icing it's on
0: the cake. The, it's definitely, yeah, it's the icing on the cake. But, yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. So. But we got to talk about Easy Living. We do. Oh, man. So where the heck, where where were we?
1: All right, so, yeah, Easy Living is a screwball comedy from 1937. Uh, it was directed by Mitchell Lyson. Some people say Mitchell Leeson. I like Lyson.
0: <laughs> Why uh, do you prefer Lyson over Leeson?
1: Um, I, I think it's just because, like, when I first, like, I, I would read it for years before I heard it. Right. And I always heard Lyson in my head. And then um, I watched Remember the Night on TCM, which is another film that he directed. And I think it was Ben Mankiewicz who was introducing it. And he said, from director Mitchell Lyson also sometimes referred to as Leeson. So I guess it's up in the air. So I'm taking the Leeson road. That film, which in recent... Like, nobody talked about it for years. Remember the night? But, like, recently they've been showing it on TV around Christmas time a lot. It's from 1940. It's got Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck four years before they did Double Indemnity together. Mm. And it's, like, a romantic comedy about this lawyer who... um, He takes this girl... Home for Christmas. Who she was on trial for shoplifting, and she's gonna have to spend Christmas in jail. And he's like, "No, it's okay. I got it." And uh, it was a different time, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it's a, it's a sweet movie, and I feel like that's the thing about Easy Living is like you have to remember it's a different time because the whole setup, yeah. the whole idea, like, oh my god, this woman is wearing a sable coat. She must be some sort of whore (laughs) We must just like
0: And it throws the whole world out of whack
1: Yeah And it's This is Post 1934 We've got the production code So there's so many like sentences That they start to say And they just stop And like we know what they're thinking
0: There's one in particular that I was like What exactly is he talking about It was right in the beginning when um, JB Ball was talking with his son jb ball jr i don't remember his name john or james it was (laughs) it was jr but he was saying that like oh you're when i was your age you know i would have smacked my grandfather for giving me that kind of lip and he was like nowadays we don't smack our grandfathers he said ah what happened but oh but they might have smacked you what happens between you and your grandfather is nobody's business, but your own, or something like that. And then he starts reminiscing about, like, there was this one time when my father got, or when I was when I stayed out too late, I was playing games and stuff, you know? Well, I came home, and my father, he... And then he looks down, and then he changes the subject, like, well, anyway... And I was just wondering, like, what exactly is he implying? What happened to him in his in his youth? Was he just like, you know, because I imagine if it was just like, oh, he gave me a whipping or he smacked me good or whatever. But I don't know, it seemed much more heinous than that. Because he just kind of left it yeah.
1: hanging. I mean, that there's a lot of stuff that's just left. I mean, people, they'll just start talking and then they go off on the tangents and they're getting excited about things and then they're like they kind of realize like i'm not even talking about what we were talking about earlier like in this podcast (laughs)
0: yes
1: (laughs) and then they just kind of like are like well let's get back to what we're uh talking about
0: (laughs) i realized while i'm editing this podcast that i do that all the time in my sentences (laughs) like i'll start to say something and then i'll change my mind and go into something else completely and i'm like what the hell is wrong with me why do i do that
1: Uh, have you seen any films that preston sturgis had directed
0: I'm sure I have. I don't know of any off the top of my head.
1: He was the the writer on this film, and um, he was one of the big writers at Paramount. There was like, there was him, and there was Billy Wilder, and they wrote all these great comedies in the '30s, and then in the early '40s they both started directing, and like that was like that great. Switch in like the early 40s Where Preston Sir, just Billy Wilder And then John Huston mm. Not in that order Preston Sir, just then John Huston Then Billy Wilder So they became writer-directors And now it's such a common thing Where like, well, yeah The yeah, director the has total yeah. control So like often they, And th- there were directors Who were always part of the writing process Like Howard Hawks He always had a hand in his scripts When they were being developed But he never once took a, a writing credit <laughs> Mitchell Lyson actually uh he was the director of the film hold back the dawn which billy wilder uh had written the script for and uh charles boyer was the star and he was in the script he was supposed to have a conversation uh like a sarcastic conversation with this like cockroach in the cell where he was being kept and the actor was so offended he was like why am i talking to a cockroach that's just ridiculous. And Mitchell Lyson was like, okay, well, you're the star. You know, let's, we'll work around that. And Billy Wilder was so pissed that Lyson, like, caved to the star that mm. he was like, that's it. You know, I have to direct now. And he went to Paramount just as Preston Sergis had two years earlier. And they were like, yeah, okay. And then he did the major and the minor. And then he went on and did, like, Some a shit ton of that. classics. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Preston Sergis, uh, he started directing in 1940 with The Great McGinney, um, which I think I, I, I don't think I talked about it. I mentioned that I had just seen it for the first time in an earlier podcast, but he also did Christmas in July, Sullivan's Travels, The Palm Beach Story, The Lady Eve, Miracle at, Miracle at Morgan's Creek, Hail the Conquering Hero, Unfaithful Years, bunch of fun stuff. And um, Yeah, I don't think I've know. seen any of them you should you should see one, you should see several I should <laughs> you should definitely see Sullivan's Travels in that film there's a there's a filmmaker who wants to make a film about the depression called "Oh Brother, where Art thou hmm. and the Cohen brothers are huge Sturgis fans as like if you're familiar with Preston Sturgis and then you watch like um Intolerable Cruelty or the Hudsucker Proxy, they have that kind of, like, snappy dialogue or pseudo-snappy dialogue. I'm not a huge fan of Hudsucker Proxy. I don't
0: know. It's, you know, it is what it is.
1: Yeah, it is. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, so that's, um, he was a big influence on them. And, uh, Tarantino, uh, says that he was a big influence on him as well, um, which I can kind of see. He's got... The snappy dialogue and stuff but so many people have been huge influences on Tarantino that it's sort of hard to trace the lines right. sometimes Yeah.
0: one of the things I was thinking about as the movie started and as it was going on was that people just don't make movies like that anymore like these wholesome grown up comedies
1: mm.
0: you know grown up comedies now are almost required to be a raunch fest you know like the hangover movies or any number of films that come out yeah and this you know i mean i don't know like it's fun to just kind of see something that's not just so focused on characters getting i don't know like like sex jokes or um just like, let, how are they gonna outdo that, or just these totally outlandish kind of things, or I don't know. It's just it's it, it feels
1: it feels very sophisticated watching something like this. It's all like innuendo and right. the double yeah. entendres and stuff, and
0: like there's no subtlety anymore. But I mean, because the of the um, the rules in place, they weren't allowed to even do that. Hmm. But it makes me wonder, like, if the code didn't exist. Like, how soon would movies like The Hangover, like, come about? There
1: is this one bit in it that it just seems to be pushing so hard on the code where um, they're lying in bed. But they're they're facing different ways. Mm-hmm. And, like, the rule is if, if two people are in bed together, one of them has to have their feet on the floor even if they're married. That was actually written in the... You can read that in the production code. So they
0: could show people, like, like, okay, you know, the wife is laying in bed and the husband is sitting on the bed, like, taking his shoes off and, like, yeah, you know, I don't know, changing his... You know, taking his shirt off or whatever I don't
1: know if he could take his shirt off if he was touching the bed that she was in there's some very specific oh, things really? he might have been I'm not sure I mean
0: I'm just even talking about like you know just unbuttoning his his dress-up shirt maybe you know he'll still have his his undershirt on yeah you know no nipples we would not we wouldn't, to see, wouldn't want to see any man nipples so okay although
1: so, I mean after 1934 people weren't really wearing the undershirts anyway because Clark Gable and it happened one night uh, he took his shirt off, and it oh, was really? he was just, hey, there's nothing under that shirt. So all of a sudden, all across America, people are like, why are we wearing undershirts? Gable's not.
0: Take your shirts off. Yeah. woohoo!
1: And then 51, Marlon Brando comes along all sweaty and hot in his Streetcar Named Desire T-shirt, and people are like, oh, okay, let's start wearing T-shirts again.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. So anyway, in this scene in, <laughs> in Easy Living.
1: Okay, yeah. All right. So they're lying in bed, and it's not... Like, their heads are lined up, but their, their feet are at opposite ends, mm-hmm. you know, and um, <clears throat> they're clearly, like, not a married couple. They just met for the first yeah, time earlier that him. night, yeah. and he they're leans clothes o- yes, like They're both fully she's clothed. Yes, they're both fully clothed. She's even wearing, like, a dress. Yeah. Like, like a Very shimmering gown. Yeah. She faces him, and he leans in, and we assume that they kiss. We don't see their faces touch.
0: That... Yeah, it's kind of blocked by her hair. Yeah.
1: And then she rolls over and faces the camera. And then she gets up. So
0: and she kind she... of, like, sits up in, in the... Yeah.
1: And we just get a shot of her, and she's like, hey. And then it fades to black. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, and then they're having breakfast.
0: And, well, no, because then it, like, shows her laying in the big bed. Right?
1: Oh, that's right. She wakes up the next morning. Yes, she is. And she's wearing different clothes. Yep,
0: she's wearing a nightgown.
1: So we don't know what happened in that fade out. Nope. But at some point between that fade out and her waking up, she has changed clothes and gone to a different... Because this bed before
0: was kind of like a... um,
1: One of the many rooms in that suite.
0: But it was one of those, like, uh, what do you call it? It's like sort of a couch bed.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Was it like a settee or something?
0: Yeah, something like that. But, I mean, so, you know, the way that it's edited and the way that it's shot, it's, like, it's implied that she's, like, sort of falling asleep as she's laying there. And the and the man is kind of just talking to her. And she's kind of, like, lazily or nodding off, kind of like, mm-hmm, yeah, whatever, you know. And then he, when he realizes that, like, oh, she's, like, falling asleep, he leans in and kisses her. She, like, sort of, you know, is asleep and she keeps her eyes closed and rolls over. And then she suddenly, her eyes snap open as she suddenly is like, she realizes. I think like, wait, did you just kiss me? She sits up and says, "What is what? What is her?" Thing? She says like, "Did she just say hey oh, or hey or something?" And then she kind of like smiles and kind of like knowingly looks down. So I think that's the kind of thing that they were like, "No, this is what it. This is what it is." Like she was just falling asleep, and it's just this funny little. I really like wish that you folks kiss, could you
1: know? like see us right now because Max just actually like kind of acted out that whole thing. <laughs> it was kind of contorting his body. <laughs>
0: it's pretty amusing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, anyone... I mean, we all know what really happened.
1: Do we? I don't know. What happens in the cut?
0: You have two attractive people who have just met. They're in... This is her first night in this insanely luxurious apartment that... She doesn't know how long she's going to be there. She was just thrown. She did not even
1: know exactly why she's there. Yeah, she doesn't there. know why
0: she's there. It's just like all of a sudden she's asked to live in this probably like the, the best hotel room in the city. And she's suddenly dressed in, you know, extravagant clothes. And, you know, she lost her job. She has nothing to lose. And now there is this <laughs> handsome young man who just kissed her laying before her. They did it. All right. (laughs) There is no way that two red-blooded people could not.
1: All right. So maybe there's not ambiguity or subtlety there. I
0: mean, of course, they make no reference to it after the fact.
1: Yeah. But they are much closer for the rest of the film. And they do act like a married couple after that point. Yeah, somewhat. Like, he's, like, coming in, being like, oh, look at all these boxes you've got, and yep. just, like... Know. They're very intimate with each other very quickly, but it's sweet. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, these two people have just kind of found each other, and they're just going to go with it.
0: Yeah. And it's played on, like, I mean, when they, when they first meet, they have, like, the, the role reversal thing going on, where... She's, like, a very, you know, not a wealthy person at all. I mean, she's just, she owes rent, and she just lost her job, and, like, she has no money. But she comes into the, um, what do they call it? The The Automat. The Automat, which is this very cool place. Yeah, apparently they don't have these anymore. And I guess they don't have them anymore. Because
1: I always saw these in, like, movies and stuff when I was growing up. And then I always thought, like, oh, wow, New York City has these things. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then, like, I would talk about it to people, and they're like, no, they don't have those anymore. And it's like, why not? That's the, I mean, maybe it's like a health code type thing, because you just have food sitting out. But,
0: but I mean, it's kind of like, it's sort of like a a high scale, or a high-end, like, fast food place, almost. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, it looked like pretty good food that they had going yeah.
1: on well i mean this is a pre-fast food so this this was their fast food this was food. their fast food
0: yeah. so essentially what what it what these were was like a kind of like a cafeteria where you have this one well like all along one wall it almost looked like a uh, like like a like a bank or like a post office uh lock box yeah wall of just all these like little boxes and they all had clear glass windows and they all had these little meals in them like little sandwiches or yeah, like
1: different sections like here are the pies here are the, here's the hot food and
0: yeah and it's all freshly made and right behind the glass is the kitchen so like you have like you know the people making up these food and then when it's done they'd slide it into the uh, compartment into the cubby mm-hmm. and then people go up and you know they're locked and you just like put in a coin and it unlocks the door you take you get the thing out and there you go you have a hot meal and they have like you know automatic coffee dispenser and all that kind of stuff yeah i'm looking at that i'm just like man that looks that looks awesome (laughs)
1: yeah it wasn't until i was in like my 20s when i realized that that's not a thing that they have like i don't know
0: i would think on like college campuses and stuff they'd do that kind of thing you know
1: that's what it kind of reminded me of or at least just that like section of um uh like different dining halls i mean i went to a few different colleges (laughs) So, like, but like all the dining halls seem to have like that one section with like the cereal dispenser yeah, and like the yeah. milk and all that mm-hmm. stuff with the levers. And, um, but I really think it's probably like a health code thing. Yeah. Because they'd probably have to like clean the cubby every like couple hours or something or like get rid of food after however, like, but it's know. the same
0: way that like, I mean, China buffets and like, um, Golden Corral and that kind of, those kind of places, the buffet style, all you can eat type places. That's true.
1: Cause that's gross. They leave
0: food out all fucking day.
1: So I don't know then. Cause I want to go to an automat. Yeah. I always have, I mean, and part of it is like, Ooh, for a nickel. But like, obviously now <laughs> I don't know what they would charge for what.
0: I mean, she was paying $7 in rent in her. A week. Apartment. $7 a, a week. week. Yeah. But still.
1: Yeah. In it's New York 20, City.
0: It's a $28 a month.
1: On, uh, was it 112th street. Yeah. The scene in the automat, when, all right, when everything just breaks down and all hell breaks loose and everything, when the guy runs outside and he's like, food, there's free food in here. Like the stampede of people. That's like one of the few reminders where it's like, oh yeah, the great depression's going on right now, isn't it?
0: right right and it's like that makes way more sense and it's
1: like this is like a comedy and there's all the pratfalls and Mm -hmm. all the little bits going on like the slaps and the great thing with the pepper in the fan Mm -hmm. where the guy goes and steals everybody's trays after they start sneezing but it's almost like well this is all happening because they're destitute and starving (laughs) and they just heard free food yeah and it's such an opulent well so many films of that era were like you know, it was, like, the escapist thing. Mm -hmm. Like, and the whole, like, um, idea of, like, oh, this is America. You can aspire to have this someday. Don't worry, you won't always be on the bottom. You can work your way up to the top, and they would show off the top. Um, And especially
0: in this movie, which is literally about, like, this young girl leaving the confines of squalor, um, and suddenly, out of the blue, literally, it falls into her lap, and she's swept up in this wonderful world of of wealth.
1: Yeah, this one definitely, like, is in dialogue with that idea more than something like the Astaire Rogers musicals where they're just, like, dancing around these, like, huge art deco right. sets. And... Well, I mean,
0: like, I don't, like, literally any movie... Pro- I mean, what's the percentage? It's got to be, like, 90% of all films from, like, the 30s feature, like, at least one character who's, like... Living in this ridiculously huge mansion with servants and maids and chefs and...
1: Even the Frankenstein movies. Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: all, all of the Universal yeah. Monster movies. Every yeah. single one of them is like, you know, about like... In the 30s. Yeah, in the The 30s. first wave. It's just all huge, huge mansions, you know, dynastic families of doctors and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think about movies like, uh, I mean, like Charlie Chaplin, I guess was one who was making movies, not some, not really about like the, that kind, that class of people.
1: Yeah. And he was so outside of the system also. I mean, he was always an independent. Right. And like, I mean, in the third, he made two movies in the thirties and mostly because it was just all his own money, his own time and everything mm-hmm. like that. But like city lights and modern times, and they both deal with like, well in city lights, you have like the millionaire that the tramp becomes friends with but only when the millionaire is drunk and if he's sober he doesn't remember the tramp but it's like it has the millionaire there to comment on the idea of millionaires Mm -hmm. and like compare them to like the the everyday like yeah the poverty stricken and then modern times is clearly just like this like pseudo communist sort of like well not communist manifesto because that's But I don't, it's very, like, heavy with its message. Yeah. Having to do with, like, the inequality of it all.
0: But yeah, I always find that just, like, fascinating. I'll, like, there are so many movies, even in the 40s, just, like, that deal. With, that just, like, our main characters just happen to be of privilege, you know?
1: Well, I mean, when you watch TV now, and, like, I mean, in movies, too, but, like, it's, like, TV is something that, tv is in our home and we watch these series and they're like part of like they form our idea of how the world is yeah and you see these families and every Mm. family they've got these great big houses and you just think oh that's what when you grow up you get a house like that that, and like they have these jobs and they're always complaining about money but they have all this stuff right and it's like
0: and they have like yeah. a very attractive wife, even though the guy's like a little overweight, and like they've got kids, and like, yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah. that's sitcom, which sitcoms at well, most
1: I mean, that way. yeah. But I mean, I feel like it is more common for shows to focus on like wealthy families than, uh... and I use wealthy loosely, like like Modern Family, like all three of those households. Like, I don't know if you'd call them wealthy. I would definitely call them wealthy.
0: I've never seen Modern Family.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'll just take my word for it. <laughs> it's a good show. But then there's but... shows like
0: um like Roseanne. Yes. Which are very realistic in their portrayal of like the average American family.
1: Yeah. As far as my actual like childhood goes, like when I was growing up, the one the shows that I looked at and were like, Oh, that's more like real life are roseanne and oddly enough the simpsons even mm-hmm. though it was a cartoon yeah yeah i mean the simpsons, and, like they had a they had a good house well i mean the Connors had a good house on roseanne also but i mean it wasn't like a
0: i mean homer had a good job he worked in a nuclear power plant yeah
1: <laughs> you know just stay stay at home wife
0: but it's an average house you know it's like, yeah
1: it wasn't like opulent or anything it no, was just, not at all yeah but i mean like the way like money was like a real issue it wasn't like, oh, no, we're going to have to cancel our ski trip or something the, like I that. I mean, in the very
0: first episode of The Simpsons, which is the Christmas right. episode, the whole crux of it is that, like, Homer has no money for presents.
1: Yeah, because he loses his bonus. Yeah. Or they and- don't... Gi- or, no, he... Yeah, he, they don't give bonuses out. And then they had savings, but they had to use it to remove Bart's tattoo.
0: Oh, right. That, that you yeah, got on the right. whim.
1: So the savings are gone and there's no bonus. and
0: Yeah, and it's like... That I mean that first special is it's really funny, but it there are moments of it that are really kinda like, you know, sad when like Homer and Bart are out there trying to like find the, the winning uh ticket stubs at the dog races. Yeah. And it's just like, you know that's that's what so many people deal with, you know, on on a daily basis, just to be able to like
1: And there there were also moments in the show like just little passing things. Like uh there was one episode where Marge is looking at the window and Bart and Lisa are like, what's wrong? She's like, I'm worried about your father. And they're like, why? And she's like, he's been missing for three days. And they're like, oh, what do you know? She's right. <laughs> and like, my dad worked, he he worked like different shifts and stuff Right. at a paper mill when I was growing up. And like, there if he had been missing for three days, I probably wouldn't notice right away because I'd just be like, oh, he must be working days he's now. Like and he's just change. like, I don't, I wouldn't yeah, yeah, see him yeah. for a while. Like he'd be, there he'd be sleeping or something but like i I wouldn't see him if he was working
0: but i mean easy living kind of you know while we are focused on this this family that is ridiculously wealthy yeah our main character is a very relatable person and Mm. you know you know there's that awesome scene when she's trying to find money to buy food because she's hungry and she like looks out the window because she smells something and sees like some woman down in some other apartment like just cooking some food or preparing something she's like oh i need i need to eat something and so she goes to her like pocket book and there's nothing in it and she finds like her wallet and there's nothing in it and she finds a piggy bank and she rattles around and there's something inside and she's like oh boy oh boy oh boy you know <laughs> and then uh She tries to get the coin out, and she can't, so she has to smash the piggy bank. Which, it might be, like, the first live-action movie where I've actually seen somebody actually smash a piggy bank.
1: And before she smashes it, she takes the time to blindfold the piggy bank. Yeah. And then kisses it. it
0: And and she says sorry, and she has a name for it. Yeah.
1: And And it's
0: like, she's
1: so hungry that she's, like, gonna, like, smash this, uh ornament. that God knows how long she's had it. Yeah. I think they make them now. I know the the piggy bank I had when I was little, it had, like, a little thing on the bottom that you could unscrew. <laughs> yeah. But I guess they didn't used to do that, because smashing piggy banks was, like, was like a, thing. a cliche. I, and I yeah. usually
0: see it in, like, cartoons and
1: yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I why think they I, did
1: it on The Simpsons at one point. Probably, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um But it was funny when she, like, you know, she picks up the piggy bank and she's trying to get the coin out. I'm like, is she gonna have to smash that piggy bank? And then She does, and, I don't know, it was satisfying to, like, finally see it happen, like, for real and in, like, a real-world setting.
1: When I was a little kid, I had a piggy bank that I kept on a shelf in my closet. One day I woke up, or my sister had one in her room, too. One day I woke up, and my parents and my sister were all, like, screaming and upset and everything, and they were in my room, and I didn't know what was going on. And then, like, I look, and there was, like, a window right by my bed, and like some apparently Somebody Had Come through my window So they crawled over Me in my sleep And they took my piggy bank And they took my sister's piggy bank What the f- They ripped the screen in my window And like they I, I I don't remember How old I was we left our First house when I was 10 so I think I was Like maybe 8 or 7 or something oh Maybe my even younger Oh god and, like, just the idea of that is like somebody was, like, here with me. <laughs> and they knew where to go. They knew, like, oh, because nothing else was missing. <laughs> just like my piggy bank and my sister's piggy bank so it we were like gonna be somebody we knew but like
0: that's so fucking. we
1: up. only knew people our age so who, who, who what like eight-year-old would be like do like it was so creepy oh my
0: god so you never found out who no
1: who they my parents called the cops and everything and they were there like investigating
0: but there's not i mean <laughs> can you imagine the cops who like police department <laughs> my son's piggy bank was stolen <laughs> My, the piggy bank was stolen. I, mean,
1: I, I, think, I think it was more focusing on the whole idea of breaking and entering, but yes.
0: The... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's like, like somebody broke into my house and stole, stole something. It's like, what did they steal? My piggy bank. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Um, we'll send someone out to investigate it for you. But no, holy shit. I mean, I hadn't thought so I actually
1: hadn't thought of that in a long weird. time, and then watching the movie tonight. Like uh, came back to me and I was like that was really fucking creepy I never really thought about that like I have no idea who did it or
0: but you just have to think like of somebody like crawling over your sleeping body
1: and this was like before I had like there was this one night where some I was sleeping in that same bed in that same house and I, somebody started like punching me violently in the stomach and I woke up and there was nobody there, but I still felt the punching. So it wasn't like somebody punched me and left. We saw, and then like, so I was just like screaming and I went to the hospital and they did tests. They have no idea what the hell that was.
0: <laughs> but, so you, um. So it was like violent enough to the point where like you.
1: I was screaming and crying in pain and I, it woke me up. Like. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was it was weird. I'm
0: going to sleep with the light on today. <laughs>
1: No, that happened a couple times where I woke up with these weird stomach things I had to go to the hospital they could never figure out what it was it doesn't happen anymore so I guess it's fine <laughs> anyway
0: off on a tangent wow I mean but that's some tangent I mean that's like I mean I can't think of anything that like fucking creepy from my childhood good I mean Jesus so they crept. So it was. They came in through your room. Yeah, because, because you know that my the screen was, was ripped. And then they got your piggy bank. And then they decided to. Because okay, so could it would it have been possible to see the piggy bank from the outside? Like if you, if someone was walking by, they look in and they see like,
1: that's a piggy bank. I mean, based on the setup of the house, it'd be creepy enough for them to be walking by my window.
0: Because it was, like, in, like... It was
1: the... in the first floor, and, like, outside my window was, like, our lawn.
0: Right. Like, backyard or side yard or something? Side yard. Side yard. So they
1: would have been, like, walking, like, maybe cutting through my yard. Which, I mean, where I grew up, we all cut through yards and everything. Yeah. We never really yeah. thought anything of it. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, my closet door would have had to have been, like, open just the right angle or something for them to see it and...
0: And then to know... Then then to, to take that piggy bank and then to, to know to go to your sister's room to get hers. Right. So it had to have been someone who knew where they were. I mean, maybe...
1: some Like, someone we were friends with knew about it just from hanging out in our house. And they told maybe, like, an older sibling or their parent. And their parent or older sibling broke in.
0: But... I mean for anyone I mean how much money could have been in those biggie banks
1: I I don't know I I mean <laughs> I didn't I did not have a job at the time yeah. my sister did not have a job at the time for we did not have allowance I really don't I really don't know
0: That's so fucking weird man yeah. Life is filled with unanswered questions and mysteries that will baffle us Till the end till we die.
1: That house isn't there anymore. I went looking for it once and there was just a big hole.
0: <laughs> it was swallowed into hell. <laughs> Apparently. <like Carrie. laughs> well, anyway. The piggy bank didn't make it out of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I
1: love about this film, and so many films of this era are just like the supporting like supporting actors who they made whole careers of just playing, like, this one type. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Franklin Pangborn. If Franklin Pangborn shows up in a movie, I get so excited.
0: Who who did you play in this?
1: He was, um... Ah, I forget his name. He was the one who sells them the hat.
0: Oh, okay. Right.
1: He had... That was his specialty. He was, like, the mincing queen. Like, just the whole, like, yes, yeah. how do you do? Or that yeah. type of thing. Um... <laughs> And like I, th- I, th- I feel like I first saw him in um, the W.C. Fields film Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. I, I probably saw him first in that because I-, I know that of the films that I'm thinking of that I've seen him in, I feel like I saw that when I was really young. But he was also in most of the films Preston Sturgis directed. Um, and I definitely saw him f- when I was fairly young in My Man Godfrey. Because mm-hmm. it used to be on TV8 all the time.
0: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> and he's just in, like, the opening scene of that movie. Is that a
0: public domain movie?
1: Yeah. Oh. Universal made it. And then... I don't know how that works. Sometimes they just don't renew copyrights, and... Yeah. There it is. It's crazy. That's another screwball comedy that deals with class. Have you seen My Man Godfrey? No, I haven't. These, like, rich people are having a scavenger hunt...
0: <laughs> sounds delightful <Right. laughs>
1: and one of the items on the list of things they have to find is a forgotten man which was the term used at the time for somebody who had fallen on hard times due to the great depression usually veterans of world war one
0: mm.
1: so that's how seriously they were taking the depression They're like oh it's a scavenger hunt. let's go find a forgotten man wow and so they find william powell as a, a man named Godfrey And they bring him into this like big Ball or whatever Screwball <laughs> And he gets up and he basically just Says like the reason I came here is To see like what kind of ridiculous people Would do something like this And and then the family kind of feels bad So they hire him as their butler Wow And, um, and then Romance ensues and it's just a It's a really That's one of the high points of the screwball genre I think
0: yeah, the screwballs... There, there, there are no real screwball comedies anymore.
1: No, no. I mean, people try. Mm-hmm. The Cohen brothers sometimes try. George Clooney tries. It's... Missing the... You can't be just as light now. Yeah. And you can't be as quick. People talk about, like oh everything's so quick now with MTV cutting and everything but really no things are so much slower
0: now than they were and 70 years ago and everything has to be spelled out exactly what it, they're trying yes. to say so we don't lose anybody sitting in the back of the theater but it's like you know it's not it's not a bad thing if some people have to like if there's something that you kind of miss the first time or some mm. joke that goes maybe over your head you know it's just everything is just pandered to the lowest common denominator it's just crazy yeah. And we're supposed to be, like, the more sophisticated age, you know, when it comes to film. Because it's like, oh, they had the code and they were, like, you know, stifled in their creativity and all that. But it's like, yeah, now we can show people's, like, you know, dicks in movies, but it's not, like... To what end? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To what end do you (laughs) show a dick in a movie?
1: Yeah, another... Trying to look up what his character's name was. Another one of the uh, character actors that showed up was William Demarest, and he's the guy he plays like sort of like a Walter Winchell spoof. What was it? what do they name him? I think it was a play on Walter Winchell. His character's name.
0: Oh, it was like um, Whistling. Yeah. Walter Whistling or something like that.
1: And I think he even has a like Walter Winchell's like ca- Wallace Whistling. Wallace. That was it. Whistle. He even wears the same that hat that Walter Winchell always wore. And uh, he does some sort of takeout like Walter Winchell always said like something like ladies and gentlemen of America and all the ships at sea and I I feel like Wallace whistling in this film said something like that it's a very small role Mm. but um, he's that great kind of like hard-boiled character Um, he just seems constantly cranky and he's another one he showed up in I think all of the films Maybe not all of Preston Surgis' films, but I'm pretty sure all the ones he did at Paramount in the early 40s. And um, in most of them, he was a cranky sourpuss. <laughs> but in, like, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, where he plays Constable Edmund Cockenlocker.
0: Cockenlocker. That is a great... That is a, That film... So they could show dicks on screen. That film...
1: if you, I feel like anybody who doesn't know what the production code was, like, watching that film today, they might not enjoy it as much like if you know about the production code mm-hmm. and you watch the miracle of morgan's creek you're gonna be like pissing your pants like noticing like oh my god they got away with that they got away with that because right. Preston surges would always like sneak things in not even at the, in that movie not even really subtly i mean it's about a woman like an unmarried like teenage girl who goes out with a bunch of soldiers on leave one night and she comes home and she's pregnant and like that it's a it's a comedy and like she's gotta like get her um like this guy who's been in love with her for years who she's always kind of like ignored like to like try and like marry her and like pretend that he was the father and they work around it brilliantly and it's amazing that they got away with it but they don't they never actually break any rules but anyway in relation to william demarest um he plays like a very sweet like fatherly character in that um and it was it's sort of like the payoff of like putting in all the years, just playing it gruff. Like he gets to have this like nice role in that one. Right. Man, but, but yeah, no, I just I just love like when you see like those characters and things like um, the guy who played the butler. He's in so many things, usually playing butlers.
0: Right. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> the guy who had like the line at the beginning, like, "I see you come down early this yes. morning." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he almost looked like Hitchcock that's the thing. Like nowadays, I think we talked about this. You, you talked about Paul Giamatti and how like he's a great character actor, but like he's always forced into these roles that like more as like a lead character.
1: Yeah. Which I mean like he, because Nowadays, it take when you see somebody like that and you know who they are, it kind of takes you out of the movie a little bit, mm-hmm. and like sometimes it works, and usually in like a certain kind of comedies. Like ju- the other day, maybe yesterday, I caught like the second half of Billy Madison on TV, and there's so many people in that movie, and they're like just people who like are in like all of the Adam Sandler movies, right? And but the,
0: those movies, you know, say what you want about them, but they have great casts.
1: They like, carry on with, that tradition. And they're
0: filled with like car- like great character actors, yeah. yeah.
1: And like the the David Spade, Chris Farley movies. Mm-hmm. Like I they just like they 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 do they carry on that tradition of having like okay, we've got all these great comic actors. Maybe we don't want them to like carry a whole film on their back. Right. But we want them to come in, do a scene, be great. And just go and cash the paycheck and leave like just but
0: yeah and like and Steve, then you Steve remember he had a lot of great roles doing yeah that, you know he's one of those that like seems like he can kind of like well i mean mo- like i guess i haven't really seen a movie where he's like the lead character
1: it's been a while in, like think.
0: in you know obviously he has more prominent roles in some films than others but he's like a great supporting actor
1: Like he had his moment in like the mid nineties, the early to mid nineties when he did things like uh, living in oblivion.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: But that was like that era Mm -hmm. kind of where like,
0: but now, like now he has the, he's the main character on the, on the, on the
1: boardwalk empire, boardwalk
0: empire. Yeah. Yeah. Which I haven't seen yet, but, um, neither have I, but yeah, I mean, it is kind of a shame. Like I, there, there aren't like those kinds of, of actors now i guess or they're not like they're out there but they're just not given like the right kind of roles
1: because if somebody like you you can't make you can't be successful doing it now really because you can't there's we don't have the studios right you can't just be under contract yeah and you can't be like oh we need this guy to just come in and do this one scene yeah and we've already got him under contract it's not gonna cost any money now it's like oh we're gonna get this guy people know to come in and because he's a name, we gotta pay him all this money.
0: Yeah, which just inflates the budgets more. Yeah. It's just
1: And then because of that they inflate the part and then it's like why is this character so prominent? Yeah. Like
0: Exactly. Um, and I, we talked about it when we talked about Twelve Years a Slave, but that movie's kind of filled with all these recognizable actors in mm. these kind of small roles that and otherwise like would like uh, the most obvious of which Brad Pitt. I mean, yeah, he was a producer on the movie, but I mean seeing this you know, huge leading man just kind of pop up in this like small kind of role. It's just,
1: especially something where like, Oh, if I was the producer, who would I cast myself as? Oh yes. The, the savior. savior.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean like And we talked a little bit about it in the past, but I mean, there are a lot of bad things about the studio system and the way that it worked. It, things were so much more tightly controlled than they are now yeah in just like the kind of content that was being made and what artists were allowed to do whether you know whether it be like directors and writers and cinematographers like they they had to do what the studio told them to and you know they got around things sometimes but they weren't given like carte blanche and they aren't today but for all the bad things about the studio system, there were a lot of good things, too. Because, I mean, just as someone who's, like, you know, trying to sort of get into the film industry, just the idea of, like, I mean, you look at, like, these filmographies of these old directors, and they have, like, dozens and dozens of films that they directed over the course of their life. Nowadays, you have, like, the some of the, the great directors of today, like... I don't like the Wes Anderson or the Darren Aronofsky, the Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, those guys, like they only have maybe about a dozen movies right now. And mm-hmm. they've been, you know, in their entire careers, um, but they're still pretty young, but it's nowhere near, like if they were working in the Hollywood system, they would have already had like, you know, <laughs> like double that at least.
1: And there would have been like that kind of, instead of like film school or anything, there was just like on the job training. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just... start out doing whatever, you work your way up, mm-hmm. and then once you start directing, usually it'd be like, okay, you make like these B pictures. Yeah. You look at somebody like Fred Zinneman, who like throughout the forties he did all these like sixty something minute like detective movies and things and um and then gets into the fifties and he's doing High Noon and From Here to Eternity and like I think he he did like six different movies that were up for best picture Mm. and like he had to, he worked his way to that point. Now it's like you go, you make your first film and you, you already want to be there at that point right? because you don't know if you're going to get a second chance. yeah. And that's like, um, and sort of like the next generation that kind of started out in television was similar to that. People like Sidney Lumet and, uh, Alan J. Pakula. And um,
0: Clint Eastwood.
1: Yeah, uh, Clint Eastwood said when he was doing Rawhide. Rawhide, (laughs) yeah. It was great because you could try different things out on different episodes. And, like, if it didn't work out, you had your contract, you'd be back next week. Yeah. And you could still sort of, like, play with stuff a little bit and kind of, like, learn the ropes and things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there was more of a... Willingness to take some risks, you know, calculated risks with people, and they would like, you know, they were trying to make stars. They were trying to generate stars in, in the acting realm of things, you know. So they'd be like, let's try to put this person in a role like this, and it didn't work out. Let's try to put her in a role like this. Hey, boom, big success. Now you're making a bunch of movies like that. And then maybe it'll branch out into something else. But obviously, sometimes it didn't work out for people, you know. Thing, there's like the Bela Lugosi's of Lugosi's world where yeah. it just, it, you know, he just gets shoved into the corner of just like you're just doing these kinds of movies and that's it. You think about someone like him, like what kind of work he could have done if the film industry was anything like it was today. You know, like you'd have other directors being like, oh, I want to use him in this kind of role or because it, nowadays it's more like it's more of a director's game as far as, like, what kinds of movies they are trying to get made. Mm. Or in the producers and the writers. They're all pitching these things to the studios. Back then, it was like the studios were like, you know, hey, we have this, we have the, the rights to this book to adapt this. Like, somebody do this. And they just handed off, like, you, writer, write this for me. And then you, director, direct this for me. And, like, there wasn't... You know. And there'd
1: be, like, 20 different writers working on a script until it finally gets a shooting. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be, like all the arbitration with the guilds that you have now, which it's good that the guilds are there, but, you know, you can have, like, that, like, one frame, well, not one frame, that one, like, setup in the opening credits that's, like, you know, like, screenplay by, and it's, like, three different names, and it's, like, based on a story by, from... A book by this person right. and like all that yeah. like there's so many people and it's just yeah. like everybody's fine with that it's like that many people wrote it pff, must not be good and it's like that's just how it was yeah. and sometimes it takes that and sometimes you call people in you call a script doctor and like ben hecht who yeah people say like oh ben hecht might have written like of all the films we consider classics today he might have written like 90 of them on credit <laughs> Uh, and like, I mean, there are script doctors today. Carrie Fisher is a notable one. Really? Yeah. She's been called in, um, on several things. There was one I was just reading about recently that she did a draft of, oh, I can't remember what it was.
0: No shit. I didn't know that she was like a writer. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: And she often goes uncredited because she's a script doctor and she just, she works over the script, gets it into shape. She gets a a good chunk of change and she's like, okay, let that guy take the job. I would, I would the love money. to
0: have that job. Yeah. Seriously. Because that's one of like as a as a writer I think like that's one of my like good strengths is being able to like look at something and and pick out like what's working and like what's not working and kinda of try to like figure out how to make it I don't know work better. I didn't know that like, you could get paid just to do that. Like uncredited. That's crazy. I
1: mean, I, to get to that point, I you feel have like to you gotta have some connections. Oh, yeah, and... for sure.
0: You know, they're not just like, you know, we're hiring script doctors, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'm going to go to, I put in my application. Like, you know. Got to take a drug test. You have to wait a few weeks <laughs> yeah. to find out if you're in. No, it's more like, you know, Hey friend, like we've worked together in the past. Like you want to look at this script and, you know, give it some polish.
1: Robert Town's another
0: one. And then they yeah. go to their other friends and they're like, oh, the script you wrote was great. It's like, yeah, I wrote it good, but, you know, my friend actually, he did a pretty good polish on it. So then they give him their script and then that's probably how it works. But, yeah, that's pretty That's pretty cool. How do you feel about the... Um...
1: Like I talked about, like the smaller roles and stuff, but like the main people, like Gene Arthur, Ray Meland, and Edward Arnold.
0: Mm. I mean, I uh, thought like, they were all great. I mean, like, and they're they're actors that I w- wasn't familiar with before this movie at all. Did
1: you see the Lost Weekend, Billy Wilder film?
0: No, never seen the Lost
1: Dial Weekend. Dial M for Murder. Yes, Ray Meland is the husband in Dial M for Murder. Ah,
0: oh, okay.
1: And he's very wicked.
0: In yes, that movie, he
1: is. I love him in that movie, and you kind of see like glimmers of that, uh, yeah. in Easy Living, where it's like he's—I mean—he's a very nice character, mm-hmm. but he's got like a little bit of bite to him. I think I don't know.
0: Yeah, I especially liked um, the actress. What was her name? Jean Arthur. Jean Arthur. She's just adorable.
1: She was Frank Capra's. Uh, well, I almost said favorite actress. She was one of his favorite. I think his favorite was Barbara Stanwyck because they had an affair. Um, (laughs) That helps. (laughs) But uh, Gene Arthur did uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for Frank Capra, and Edward Arnold was in two of those, um, and he did some other ones for Frank Capra, and he he was always, like, the epitome of, like, the big evil tycoon.
0: Right, yeah. Which...
1: It's not, I mean, he is that to a degree in easy living, but he's a great guy. He's a easy lovable living. buffoon. Yeah.
0: You know? He's just even a if blowhard. Is, even but... if he is, the, the, you know, the one who's like, you're foreclosed. You're still yeah. like, ha oh, I love this guy, <laughs> you know?
1: Um, but yeah, Gene Arthur this is like uh, Howard Hawks always wanted, like every movie he did, he always wanted to have Gene Arthur in it. And his whole career, he only got her in one movie. Uh, only Angels Have Wings. And he just he thought she was great, and like in on the one movie they that he got her for, they did not get along at all. She was a very difficult actress, not because she would play like the whole like diva type thing, but because she was very insecure, hmm. and like she would be like throwing up and like shaking violently before wow. the camera even, started even rolling. Even like that
0: late in her career, like
1: yeah. Well, I mean, this is like I'm trying to think. Her last movie was Shane in nineteen fifty three. And like she started in like maybe late twenties, early thirties, but she didn't become established until like these like screwball comedies. Right.
0: So when did when did so what year did she work with um, uh, Only Angels Have Wings?
1: Uh, that was nineteen thirty nine. So two oh, years after this. Oh okay. This, okay. I was yeah.
0: thinking when, for some reason when I think Howard Hawks, I always think like fifties. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it, and it only it like kind of shows like on the screen she seems so vulnerable.
0: Oh, yeah. And I, I love her voice, too. It has this kind of like, um, like, I don't know. Craggy type.
1: I don't know how to describe it. Yeah,
0: I don't know. No, exactly.
1: I've read so many different articles and things where people are trying to describe it. It reminds
0: me like... of like Bernadette Peters' voice. Okay. In that kind of like, oddly unique, but just really cute, you know? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I thought she was great. And she's like, she's very likable and like,
1: She's like a real person. Yeah,
0: she feels like a very but more so. Yeah. (laughs) This is a random thought. One thing that I thought about, um, because at the beginning of the movie, it starts with the with uh, the JB ball throwing the fur coat over the edge of the thing, and it happens to just land on this on this girl, um, who is our main character, and it sucks her into this whole thing, and she's like riding on like a open roof bus, or yeah. trolley or something. And like there's a double a, decker bus. And there's a guy sitting directly behind her. <laughs> was and was he wearing a turban? Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking like what if the the bus had been just like a couple <laughs> feet forward as that coat fell onto it? And what if it landed onto him? And so he got off the bus and was like Going from door to door Did you drop a coat Did you drop a coat <laughs> And he was the one Who got sucked up Into this whole Madcap adventure
1: Oh my god What Would would JB Ball Have bought him A new turban <laughs> yeah,
0: A fur <laughs> turban To go with his fur coat
1: Franklin Pangborn's character Is like Ooh I see what's going yeah, on here exactly. Yeah exactly
0: And then all the tabloids uh, And newspapers Are like you know JB Ball's off on his you know, With his lover boy <laughs> And like no, it's just a big misunderstanding. Uh, kismet.
1: <laughs> I love that that's just his one line. Yeah. She like just like turns and's like what and he's just like kismet. Uh.
0: And he was uh he was right. It's all mm. just faded to be that way.
1: I wonder what happened um after the movie ended. When the coat fell on the other girl. Yeah, right? (laughs) What was her adventure?
0: She didn't get one. Or was she just like... Sorry, we've had enough adventure for one weekend.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But she was just like, oh, sweet, free coat, and just ran off.
0: Yeah, that's probably what happened.
1: (laughs) Which, I mean, that's one of the things that, like, sucks us right into the Gene Arthur character. Is The fact that she would get off the bus and be like, oh, my God, I have to return this to whoever lost
0: it. Yeah, because so many people would just be like alright I got wow look at this and that's what's I mean there's kind of a lesson in that like she was trying to do the right thing and like return the coat partly because you know someone might have lost it but also because she didn't really appear to like really want the coat at first anyway she was kind of like it wasn't practical and whatever but I mean if she had just stayed on the bus and said wow free coat this is this is my lucky day it really wouldn't have turned into her lucky day because what would have happened is she would have walked into her job wearing the coat like she did in the movie and she would have gotten fired because of it and then she would have no one to fall back on because she didn't actually go talk with JB ball and be introduced and there would be no connection there and that would be the end of it and she would have who knows where she would be she could always sell the coat though (laughs) <laughs> she
1: might end up exactly where the boy's constant companion thought she already was.
0: Yes, exactly. Which it's funny that like the magazine they work for is like the boy's constant companion and there's like the painting of the ideal American boy. And the only people who work there are like just these old frigid old nasty spinster ladies. <laughs> ladies that are just presided
1: over by Mr. Higginbottom. Yeah. Which I love that name. Just like these ridiculous <laughs> names throughout. Like Louis, Louis.
0: Yeah, Louis. Louie. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I wonder if that's where they got the idea for the song, like 20 years later.
0: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they like, I want to write a whole song about that guy. <laughs> that was the best character ever. I need to write this song. Um, um, one thing that the movie kept reminding me of is a movie that we recently talked about, and it's a topical movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. Because there are scenes in this um where people are snorting drugs out of each other's anuses <laughs> yes um no but like there's this whole thing about like you know buying and selling stocks and mm. you know this this uh crazy situation that they've got their, themselves into is inadvertently causing the stock market to crash and this is right around the time as we said is like in the middle of the great depression and uh we are now in a depression ourselves of some kind or a recession at least. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people feeling that and as much as that was a comment on that, of that economic situation, Wolf of Wall Street today is kind of like somewhat of a modern equivalent, I guess. Um, it's very different, but it was just funny because they even call um, J.P. Ball, his, his nickname is the Bull of Broad Street. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. It's, it's just this kind of funny parallel.
1: It is, it's a, it's amusing that, like, like, the effect they have on the rest of the world. Like, the characters in this film are all, they're having their fun and games and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the things that they cause like the riot at the automat yeah and like the stock market, the like stock market comes market so close crashing, to crashing yeah. just because of like these like romantic situations these silly screwball yeah. events like it, it just reminds me of like um
0: and it nearly puts the hotel out of business too
1: yeah um like it, it just reminds me of um in like greek mythology when, um, like, oh, those crazy gods are up to their mischief. And, right, like, And right. then because they're, like, messing around up there, we're going to war all over down here and everything. And <laughs> or they're, I, like,
0: earthquakes and floods yeah, and stuff. Yeah, just because they're, like... And the gods are, like...
1: Oh, Zeus can't keep it in his pants. And then a volcano erupts.
0: Like, <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. all these people... Yeah. Um, or, like, um... And I guess, yeah, like, I guess, you know, J.P. Ball could be kind of seen as, like, a Zeus, hmm. and he's up on Olympus with his wife and they're getting into a scuffle and who would be Hera, I guess his wife and they have their disagreement. And so he just offhandedly throws this $55,000 coat and $55,000 for that kind of money in 1937. When rent is $7 a week, it would have been astronomical. Um, And you know, his son is like, you know, I want to go down to the real world, daddy. And, like, you know, like, it, it, it does kind of have this sort of Greek god kind of plot to it.
1: I actually, um, a while back, maybe, like, ten years ago or something, like, I wanted to make this documentary, pseudo-documentary. Like, I would use all this, like, actual footage, mm. but I would, like, put a twist on it. And it would be, like... it would, cover the time from like just before september 11th to when the u.s invaded iraq and it would juxtapose that with like the rise of reality tv in that time and how we started that like it was around that time when we started to have all these shows that were about these celebrities doing whatever nonsense like yeah that's when the Osborn's first started mm-hmm. um and like in the documentary, it would treat like those are like the gods on Mount Olympus and they're causing all this stuff oh, and not saying like Ozzy Osbourne is responsible for 11 right, right, or anything yeah. like
0: that. No, Cutthroat Island is. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. We covered that earlier. <laughs> um, but just sort of like tie in like, you know, these people are all like having fun on their wealthy playgrounds. Right. And this is the havoc they're causing mm. in the context of the documentary. I don't know. And I might not be explaining it correctly. And, like, I I mentioned it to people at the time, and everybody pretty much said that's the dumbest thing ever. (laughs) So it never really went anywhere. I think it's
0: kind of funny. Like, I just, you know, you imagine, like...
1: Maybe not do it in, like, a documentary style. Maybe actually do, like... (laughs) Call up Paris Hilton and be like, will you... I'd like you and Kim Kardashian to play yourselves in this movie I'm making about September 11th. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, they'd say, no... Paris Hilton might say that's hot, (laughs) but then decide, no.
0: Or that's not.
1: Oh. Did she ever do that? She made a
0: movie called The Hottie and the Naughty.
1: Oh, yeah. There was a period in like 2007, I think, where I didn't notice, but I was saying that's hot all the time. (laughs) And then I said it once, like at a party or something, and I think it was my friend Alex. She was like, Okay, Paris. And I was like, What? And then I like it clicked in my head like oh my god, I've been saying that like every day for the past <laughs> however long and then and I And everyone it's
0: like you flash back and everyone in your life is like looking at you like, Oh that was weird. Yeah, I don't You're talking about it, you're like what's what's up with Tim lately?
1: <laughs> we gotta have an intervention.
0: Um Yeah. But anyway, um we've been going for about an hour and a half now.
1: Well, I'm glad we we got to do a movie from this era.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I uh, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was really fun. Um.
1: Oh yeah. Usually we start with that. Like, so what do you think of the movie? Yeah. See, so, yeah, I've been assuming that you enjoyed it. No, I, you know, did, I did.
0: I did. It was. I mean. Yeah, I was. I was laughing. Uh, quite a lot, pretty consistently throughout. There's nothing you know, you can't fault a movie like this. It's, it's just like. It's fun, you know. Hmm. And it's, it's especially nice to just like, I think this might be like our first overtly just like comedic movie. Just, it's a comedy. Yeah. I don't think we've, I mean, maybe Pluto Nash is going to be considered like a comedy.
1: But that was such a, (sighs) that movie tried so hard to be more than what it was, which movies have to now. Yeah. Because they have to, especially when you spend that much money on a movie you have to draw in the audience and you have to make it seem like you have to see this movie when this was a time when like they knew because of like the whole, like setup with the uh, distributors and like block booking and stuff. And especially like Paramount was one of the, the big studios that owned its own theaters. Mm. It's like if no one goes to see this movie, it doesn't matter because we'll make the money back on the next movie.
0: Right. And so, like, they could just, like, every movie they put out was like, the big movie, you have to see this, come and check it out. And, like, they gave, you know, almost, like, it seems, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but it seems like they gave, like, an, e- sort of, almost an equal marketing push for, for most everything.
1: To a degree, yeah. Um...
0: And, you know, some stuff they probably, like, you know, pushed harder than others, but. Most of the Seems stuff like they that gave everything more, a fi- like everything had like a real fighting chance. Yeah,
1: like something like that cost a ridiculous amount of money. Like Gone with the wind, they obviously they had to go all out, right? Because that was money they had to make back and stuff. Um, and because it was so long, they couldn't just plug it into regular rotation. They had to like do like a road show thing with it. Um, but also, this in the like before the end of World War Two, it was a time when you didn't go to see Easy Living, you went to see the movies.
0: The movie, yeah. And
1: if Easy yeah. Living was the movie that was playing, so be it. Yeah. But you, that was, it was a ritual. You just went to the movie.
0: It's kind of like TV now, where it's just like you're watching TV, you know? Yeah. Um, not so much now because there's so much, but like, you know, when you have just like your basic channels, you have your ABC or NBC or CBS and Fox and whatever, and it's just like, you You just just watch whatever's on on, and you know you just like
1: you fold laundry and it's on and it's just
0: on and like that's what's there and there's something kind of like almost nice about that you know comforting almost like i don't even have to make a decision about what movie i want to see i'm just gonna see a movie which kind of ties into like this theme's month i didn't choose to see this movie it was chosen for me. I just sat down to watch a movie, and it just so happened to be "Easy Living." So I think that'll about wrap it up for us. All
1: right, I look forward to next week.
0: Yeah, I'll see what what I can pull out. Um, <laughs> but at least, like, I mean, now that we've watched this and I've seen that, that's good. I feel like okay, I can choose anything. You know, I don't have to. Do something that's like, I don't know, it can just be like a screwball comedy from the 30s, you know? It doesn't have to be like anything spectacular or, you know.
1: Or we don't have to keep watching movies where a lot of people die and the protagonist kills himself at the end. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's next time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us another exciting episode of Talking Movies I'm Max I'm Tim we'll see you next time